Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode four of the Downrange Podcast. I'm Cody, your host. Today's episode is with Christopher Hicks. Chris is a retired Air Force veteran whose service included 11 deployments, one being with my wife, Yari. Chris is a family friend of ours, somebody who we might not talk to daily or weekly, but he's always there. The constant positive influence that you need in your life. Chris is also a cancer survivor. With no medical history or family history, he was diagnosed with stage 3 colon cancer, and he beat it. Chris's story is about service, wanting more out of your life, regardless of where you come from, what your upbringing is, overcoming obstacles and perseverance to fight on, beating cancer, and the service because of your medical history that now tells you that they no longer need you. It's also a story about creating an environment that makes you happy. And sometimes that means hurting people that are close to you. This is Chris's story. Enjoy. Hi, Chris. So where do we even start, man? Let me see, man. I probably what decided to enlist around what my junior year. Or let's let's go way way back. Way way where back. Are even, oh. Where are you even from, bro? I'm I'm from a small town in Texas. It's called San Agustin, right there on the Louisiana border, man. A town of um, at the time it was three thousand two hundred twenty-seven. Grew up with my three sisters and my mom. Uh, later on, my stepdad came along. Was an amazing role model. Pretty rough childhood growing up, man. But I had a loving family. I did have that, man. Growing up in like you know pretty rough neighborhood, the projects, man. You know we see drug deals, shootings, stuff like that. What what impact did it have on you as a kid? I always felt different, and I always felt like I belonged somewhere else. And that that's how I knew. Like even my mom, she used to be like you know, you know, you're, you're not, you're going to do big things. You're not going to be here forever. So dude, I left at 17. So, you know, seeing all that stuff, it just let me know that I was meant for something bigger. So growing up, I mean, was the military a part of your life? Yeah, man. Um, I have three uncles and I just found out like a grandfather of mine on my dad's side was a, a retired Lieutenant Colonel. Two of my uncles are chiefs retired. Um, two of my cousins in San Antonio right now, um, my blood cousin and his wife, they're both chiefs. So dude, we have a long, we have a long line of uh, military in our family. So if I wasn't going to go play football, I was like, man, I'm just going to go in and travel the world, get my schooling done and just have a good time, meet all types of people. So when did the decision come that, Hey, this is what I'm going to do. And the air force is going to be the way that I'm going to go. Oh, I knew air force the whole time, but, um, we just messed around in the auditorium one day and, and there were recruiters and stuff came by and, you know, we just took the ass out, you know, we're just in there fooling around being stupid. And they were like, Hey, anybody who wants to come take the ass fab, come to the auditorium and uh, we'll, we'll set it up and we'll get everybody tested who wants to take it. So man, I took that thing and I scored like a 60 something. I didn't pay too much mind to it at the time. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to the air force or the military right now. But as I got closer to graduation, it seemed more and more like that was going to be my goal. So by the time uh, graduation rolled around, you had the guys that come in with the big checks and stuff like that. 
at the graduation and presenting the checks to like the military guys that are going in. I was like, okay, man, I got this big 80 some thousand dollar check. Like I'm thinking like, that's mine. Like now nah, did I know that's just for school. That's what school was worth at the time. So I was like, yeah. So man, um, yeah, graduation was May, May 20 something, May 21st, I believe. And I was gone. I went to delayed entry. I worked at Pizza Hut for, dude, I did Pizza Hut for like three or four months. And I was like, I know. Yeah, well, this is not what I'm going to do with my life right now. And I was just I was just on the late entry, man, just waiting to go working at Pizza Hut in a little town called Nacogdoches. So what, what were you doing in uh, at Pizza Hut? Like delivering pizzas? Or you, no, you man, I was making the pizzas and I, I was terrible at it. Cody, I got that's the first and only job I ever got fired from. That dude made me, he let me work that a whole day and then told me I was fired after about three months. Oh. I was like, yeah, okay. I already knew I wasn't good at making pizzas. So I'm meant for something way more important than making pizzas. So I was like, I'm good. No one even mad. All right. So delayed entry. Did you, throughout your like recruiting process, did you get a pick your job? And did you know like what job you wanted to do? Dude, I had no idea going in. I mean, even though I had uncles and cousins that were in the military, I just went in open general and I got to pick the one. Um, I guess I got my third choice in basic training. So what were your choices? Of course, security forces, which I was like, uh-uh, not even going there. Uh, admin was a choice. Life support at the time, which they called, uh, it's aircrew flight equipment now. The last one, I believe, was um, something with computers. And I was like, ah, I want to do something that I'm active with. So I chose the uh, aircrew flight equipment or life support at the time. Enlisted in um, Shreveport. And dude, that's the first time I'd ever been on a plane. Flying from Shreveport to San Antonio. And I'd been up to my uncle's a couple of times, but like, I, I was like, why am I flying here? I could have just drove, but like, I guess that's part of the process. Yeah. You, of course, you know, we get there and fresh out, fresh out the country. Never been on a plane and man to get us on that bus. And of course, you know, they're all calm at the airport and stuff, but then they get us to the base and, you know, they're yelling at us and, you know, we're in shock when we get there. They're yelling at us, pick them up, put them down, pick them up, put them down. Like, man, what the hell did I sign up for? You grew up playing football. You've, you've gone through all this before. Oh, that was different, man. You know, that's different. Like, you know, our coaches, we were used to that. But complete stranger coming and yelling at you and just telling you what to do. And you know you can't react. And I had a bad temper coming out of high school, going into basic training. But I knew I had to have some kind of restraint if I wanted to make a career out of this. And I knew it changed me for the better. I can tell you that. Uh, my attitude, I mean, it was still somewhat, I think it was dormant. And it wakes up, it was awakened here and there. But like I knew to keep my bearing. Was that a tough lesson to learn or did you figure it out pretty quick? Man, you know, uh, I guess playing sports, you get pretty disciplined, but um, having a complete stranger and it was a female coming up to you, um, yelling at you. And she was a little short, like five, two lady. And man, she came on the bus all nice and said, hey guys, you know, come on, get off the bus. And man, when we got to the door of the bus, get the hell off the bus. I was like, oh man, this lady switched up that quick. Like, what is going on here? Yeah. Lots of good memories coming back now. Mm -hmm. So basic training, how was it? Besides, uh, you know, a little bit of an adjustment in life, did you seek 
mentors to somebody, you know, that talk you through the process of what you would expect of basic training or were you kind of going in? Um, it was a little bit of, a little bit of both, man. My uncle was on the other side of the base and that's what I didn't want my TI to find out. Right. Because once they find out you have, like, you might have some kind of leverage, they're going to use it against you. And every time I got in trouble, he was like, your uncle can't save you now. Like, dude, my uncle has nothing to do with this. But of course you can't say that, but I, I met so many good friends, man. And um, a lot of guys come in, they didn't have like the fortitude that I had to like withstand the yelling. And, you know, back then T.I.s could put hands on you. Yeah. You know, I seen dudes get um, T.I. pushing them and, you know, flipping beds with the guys in them and stuff. I'm like, dude, what is going This got to be illegal. But come to find out it was. And it got cut out later. But I met so many good friends in basic training that I'm still in touch with today, man. And that was over 20 years ago. Yeah, actually, November 27th will be the 20th, the 20th year. Crazy how a little bit of adversity thrown into a, a group of complete strangers and you can form these bonds with people. Oh, yeah. Man. Literally a last, last a lifetime. It pulled us together because we hated our T.I. We hated Sergeant Pollock. We called him the Red Devil because he was a redhead dude and dude, that dude did not care about anything. And he never went home. So we never had that, like, that time to buy ourselves to like, talk and like, you know, how the, how the day go, man? Is anybody good? You know, he was always there. Like, man, ain't no getting away from this dude. But by the end of basic training, man, we, we realized what he was doing and why he was so hard on us. And why he did the stuff that he did as far as like the discipline part of it. You got to break us down to build us up. And he exactly. explained that. Uh, I think he explained that on the second to the last day. So we definitely understood the lessons uh, learned in basic training. And he probably made you the, the airman that you eventually became because of it. I Yeah, I sent him a message literally about two years ago to thank him. And let him know that I never forgot about him. And like, I just thank him for the lessons that he taught us going in. That definitely made a lasting impression on me. So post-basic, where did we go? Post-basic, man, we went to Davis Mothin. It's where I met your wonderful wife. So we, all of us, man, kicking it in the dorms, a little bit of partying and stuff like that, man. Those, those are like her and Miranda and a guy named Mike we hung out with. And it, it's just like, I'm back in Arizona now. And I went to the base. Just to get that nostalgic feel of us running around the base, just, you know, how close our little crew was when we got there. And, you know, me and Yari worked in the same squadron. She was Intel. I worked right down the um, hallway. So that became like my sister. So then, you know, we ended up deploying together, man. Just like so many good moments together with, uh, with our little small group, man. So what year did you get to, to DM? I got the DM in March of 2002. So what was it like then? Obviously, I mean, you must have enlisted right before September 11th. I did. Probably going through training during September 11th. Yeah, I enlisted in June of 2001. I was on delayed entry when the towers were hit. And then I went in in November and they called us and they gave, they gave us a choice of whether we still wanted to go in. I was like, hell yeah, I'm definitely down now. I don't know what I'm going to be doing, but I'm ready. So after they gave us that choice, uh, we went there. The basic training was, it was short. It was like six to seven weeks. And I blew through that and blew through tech school. We went to um, Wichita Falls for tech school. 
And that was only uh, another five weeks. And then they sent us straight to the base. It's hard for people to understand, but when you first report to your first duty station post-training, it's a big, big deal. And I ask Yari this all the time because I'm always like, well, what was it like to report and, and probably be one of the first waves coming out of training post-September 11th and like war is now going on? Bro, you know, you, war you, is got, all... you guys enlisted with yeah. peacetime and you're coming to your first duty assignment at a time of war. Yeah, man. War is literally all we've known for our whole military careers. Um, I got there in 2002 and I think I'm pretty sure me and Yari went out on maybe I think she went out before me. I think she went to Greece uh, because they wasn't letting us in Turkey when everything kicked off. So I think I went on the second wave and she was on that one too. Uh, we went to, I think we went to Lille down by An Nazaria, uh, Southern Iraq, I believe. Yep. Man, just imagine like, you know, 18, 19 year old, you haven't been anywhere farther than Louisiana. And like what I never told anybody was like, I was dealing with like depression uh, back then because I got out there and I, I don't, I didn't know anything about Arizona. Get out there. They send you that far from home to Arizona. You don't have any friends or family out there. So crazy thing. Like I think me and Yari and him, I think, I don't know if we went to FTAC. I think we went to FTAC together, the first term Airman Center together. And I think that's how like we all gelled and got so close with each other because they were the first people, first faces kind of that I, that I saw in a group setting there. So I kind of just stuck to them. I was really, really depressed, man. Like I just, I sat in my room for about, I would say two or three months before I really did anything. I was like, man, I got to get up. And, you know, I love basketball and that opened the door to so many friendships. Like, you know, we go down to the U of A and play down there. And, you know, a lot of the U of A players, they were there playing and they, they would come on base and play as well. And, you know, that's, that's how I built a lot of, a lot of friendships. It's yeah, the man, first time that, you know, you're, you leave home, you go to basic training, you're immediately thrown in, you know, thrown together with a large group of people, but you have people and you're going through it together. Just kind of like what we said earlier, you go to tech school, get trained on your job, same thing with a new group of people, but you're going through it together. There's structure, there's routine. There's not a lot of free time. No. When you first get to your, your duty station, you show up. And now you have some freedom, literally it's a it's lot just of freedom, your, your job now. And if, until you find your group, your mm -hmm. tribe to hang out with, you're just kind of by yourself. So yeah, I get it, man. Yeah. Once I got to playing basketball and got out and meeting people, uh, we would go out, you know, clubbing, acting up, whatever. And, you know, that made it a lot better once I established like my immediate circle. Yeah. And like, yeah, we just kind of stuck together with each other. Yeah, throughout the dorm life and whatnot. So, man, like, I don't, I don't think Yari knows, like, you know, how much our friendship means, even though, like, we don't talk as often as we want to. But, like, just thinking about, like, how instrumental they were earlier in my career, those are friendships that I'm always going to keep and near and dear to my heart. So I, I just cherish those type of friendships and, like, just genuine people. Uh, that I kept in touch with from back then, which which helped my mental a lot. And I didn't know like about depression or anything back then or loneliness and, you know, just having to like get up, just making yourself get up 
and actually get out of that bed and man, just go do something with your day because you, you were so used to like being with your family at home and you would see these people every day. And you're still basically, you were in high school a year before that or a year and a half before that. And now you just, you're an adult and you're living on your own as far away from home as you can even fathom. So once I, once I found them, man, we, we were good to go. Doing all sorts of bad stuff. Beating up oh, Tucson, going down to Nogales. I've heard plenty of oh, these stories. Oh, you know, you've been down there. I know you were in Tempe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first deployment, what was it like? And first of all, I think in like layman's terms, how can you describe what your actual job is? How I describe it to everybody is like, if you see any of these movies that have pilots, perfect example, Top Gun or anything like Independence Day, any of that stuff that they have on, I am in charge of maintaining that stuff. Uh, Night vision goggles, ejection seats, G-suits, like the pilots can't fly without, they can't fly jets without their air crew flight equipment people. Uh, we teach survival classes as well and life rafts, any, any kind of survival equipment, we maintain it for our air crew. So you're telling me the pilots don't do everything? Man, they, they like to think they do. You can't tell them they don't, but they know they can't fly without us. That's true. That's true. They'll never admit that though. No, they won't. They're too prideful, but it's all good. But they took care of us, man. You were asking like how this first deployment was. If I'm being honest, it was the best and worst deployment that I've ever had, you know, because it was so hot and it was like, you know, we got flooded out of our tent and then you got camel spiders all over the place. <laughs> and, but like the group Descri had, Describe to people what a camel spider is real quick. Bro, this is like, this is what nightmares are made of. Like these spiders is like, they're so big and they're fast and they're aggressive. And like these pictures on the internet, like they're, they got them all around the internet. But like when you see one in person, it does these pictures no justice. Like they got you in this big dark hangar in Southern Iraq and our um, life support, what do they call it? Trailer. It was in the back of the hangar in the left corner. So you got to walk. By the time you get, it's this light, it's really light outside, but by the time you get to the back of that corner, it is dark. And I remember the exact layout of that hangar. Our thing was in the back left and there was a tent over here. I don't know who left it, but that was like Camel Spider Central. So I was like, oh man, like every day you walk, you're going to see a Camel Spider walking in that damn hangar every day. And they would chase you because that's how aggressive they were. And then to wake up, we slept in mosquito nets like the, I don't know if anybody's seen the golden child. Oh yeah. But we slept in mosquito nets with four posts to keep anything, any kind of mosquitoes, any kind of insects off of us. Pretty sure you know about all that, but to wake up and, you know, put on your flip flops and there's a damn camel spider in your tent. And you, you don't go to sleep after that. And you're just up, man. And, but you, we dealt with it. What, but what made it so good was like my crew. Um, the crew makes the deployments. Like I was in Qatar, had all the internet activity and, you know, pools and stuff like that. But it held, it, it couldn't hold a candle to like our deployment in Southern Iraq because we had, we didn't have like cell phones and stuff like that. And we had to go call, collect home and stuff. And we didn't have like, we had video games. We, that's when the Xbox had just came out. So all we played was like the first Tiger Woods. And I was like, oh man, I was like, maybe I want to go play golf one day. 
<laughs> I was really good at Tiger Woods. But then we go work out and then we go eat. And the food was like so many different foods. Like it was like Southern Comfort, Mediterranean, uh, Surf and Turf. They fed us good. And that, that made it good, too. So we get our crew and we wait after work was over. And then we go eat or then or we sit at work with our commander and play Call of Duty uh, on the computer. And, you know, come home and just sit back and, and chill with us, man. Like it was like it was no rank over there, really. And you knew everybody had a job to do. And once everybody did their job, we would kick back and, you know, have some drinks or whatever or go eat. Simpler times for sure, where it doesn't matter what you're doing or where you belong kind of in the pecking order, but you're all going after the same objective. And that at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Right. What did you learn on the first deployment? Man, I learned that um, I'm a lot, lot more calmer than I than I thought I was. And, you know, when these bombs are going off and, you know, everything is hitting you from left, every angle and you're in the middle of the camp and you got you got the sirens and everything going off. And, you know, I thought I would buckle and like freak out. But, you know, I did maybe the first and second one. But after that, man, you kind of get used to it. And I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing that you get get used to it and you kind of get complacent. I'm not going to say like you lose your bearings, but it just seems like another day. And that's what a lot of people don't know about these deployments. You know, all this stuff is going on around us. And, you know, I just learned a lot about myself out there, man. Um, You know, I started meditating, check my mental game. And I figured out, man, I was I was definitely way, way more mentally stronger than I ever thought I was. And whoever thought like a little little country boy from little St. Augustine would be Way over in Southern Iraq, man, fighting a fight. All right, where'd you, where'd you go to after that? Back home, back to Tucson. And I think we, um, after that one, we went to Balad. Again, had my crew with me, had Yari with me again. So that's kind of like my battle buddy. So, yeah, we went to Balad after that. And, you know, it's, it's more the same stuff, but we lived in trailers then. We didn't live in tents, so... It was kind of comfortable, and that then we had TVs. Living that good life, man. Having living the good life had TVs, internet cafes, man, gyms and stuff like that. But as I more as the more deployments I went on, as I, I kind of got more focused uh, on actually what was really going on uh, with our mission and stuff like that, because I I would sit in on um, some intel briefings and brother stuff that they told us it was like amazing what was going on and when we can go to like the skiff and look at these videos of like these planes uh the where was it c-130 the gunships raining hell down on these people it was nuts it's always funny when you're like you know so young in the military and you're just kind of there doing your job and doing whatever anybody tells you to do and it just gets so repetitive and then all of a sudden once you get interested about it and, and start doing it a couple more times and you get interested in the bigger picture of things, the more and more you learn, the more and more it just opens your, your mind to what the actual mission and intent and man, it's crazy. Some of the stuff you can get into. Yeah. And you know, you can sit with the guys, sit with the pilots, sit with the Intel people and you're like, you kind of learn that job because that's really all you got to do over there. 
it's just I just ask questions because y'all already tell you I didn't do much of nothing over there after I sent my crew off, man. I was just like, all right, who can I go talk to? Whose job can I go chill at? But like they didn't let us in the intel vault all too often. So, you know, I would just sit and talk to like the air crew guys and the load masters and stuff like that and just ask them about their job. So you got it kind of got locked in and man, the days just seemed to to flow after that. Is there anything besides your amenities and stuff like that? What was the difference between your first and second deployment? Uh, more access to stuff. Like over there we had, with the first one we had a gym, but everything was in a tent. When I tell you, Cody, man, that second one, they, they built us like a world-class gym with like a community center and, you know, everything, everything we could, we could ask for, they, they built for us. And, you know, they kept us happy and occupied and we were wanting for nothing. And the food seemed like it got even better, which, which made the deployment so much more better. For sure. Crazy to think about, like, uh, your guys' first deployment coming right after, like, you know, shock and awe and the invasion and everything else like that. And people still thinking, oh, we're just going to be here for a little bit. Don't build anything permanent. Still living in tents and, and you know, modular trailers and stuff like that. Yeah. To the second deployment of like, all right, we're going to be here for a little bit. This is going to take us a little bit longer. Might as well start building some of these bases out. Yeah. Put in some nice stuff for the people. And the crazy thing is, like, where I started is where I ended. No, the second one. That was my second deployment. I went on 11 total. But funny story is, like, we were over there when they built everything at Balad. And my last deployment leaving was tearing everything down from Balad. So I got to see it all built up and I got to see it as a ghost town uh, leaving out. Uh, I think my last one was 2016, nope, 2012 when I left Florida. That's when I shut everything down, but I still have, I think I had two more after that. So in total you had 11 deployments. Yeah, most of them were at DM. How many? How many different bases have you been stationed? At? Uh, started in at DM, went to Germany. After Germany, I hit Florida, Florida to Bahrain. Bahrain, I went to Croatia for about eight or nine months. After that, I went back to Colorado Springs and up to uh, after Colorado Springs, I went up to Fairchild and watched in Spokane. And that was it for me. Did you get to see the world? What? Man, I've seen, I went, I got to go on my dream vacation when I was stationed in Bahrain. So they give us a mid tour to pretty much anywhere in the world. They're going to, they buy our tickets anywhere in the world. So my mom was like, yeah, my baby's coming home. I was like, nah, my, I'm going to Australia. So I went to Sydney for my 29th birthday and, and I went out there by myself and had the best time of my life. I met so many people out in Australia, uh, just walking and it's on the Sydney Harbor, man. Like that, that been my dream. I don't know why, ever since I was a kid to go see the opera house. So I got to go see the opera house and I took like this stupid picture jumping in the air like an idiot, <laughs> but it was on my birthday, man. And like, yeah, dream vacation, man. Been there, been been to Thailand, you know, Alaska, 
pretty much every continent except Antarctica. And that's the military has afforded, you know, me to do all of that and a little bit more. So I guess we could say that's a quick overview. Yeah. But really, that's just like the the smallest section, the smallest part of your story. Yeah. Yeah, man. What really started to happen? I mean, we could go into medical stuff. We could go into, you know, just your life trying to manage and, you know, fulfill every, people, other people's needs when you're still trying to do your job and deployments and, and everything else. I mean, over time, you can only put so much stuff in, in your suitcase yeah, man. before you're just okay. like, man, I got I to gotta take care of me. Yeah, so I got back from Bahrain. I met a lovely young, lovely young lady in Florida. Um, the name was Desiree. She was coming out of her marriage, and but we agreed to like you know kind of just talk over time. And by the time if, um, if nobody was had a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, when we got back, we we see where it went. Luckily, I was tired of being out there in the world. When I got back from Bahrain, so, you know, met her and got back together. Um, she was in Dallas. I ended up moving her up to Colorado Springs with me uh, when I got back. And we ended up getting married. Me just thinking, like, I didn't do, I had no playbook to marriage. Nobody told me to ask questions. Nobody told me to do anything, man. And I got married to this girl and she had three kids. So that's me. It's like, it's like hitting a brick wall, not in a bad way, but like you go from just being free to traveling the world to an instant family. Little did I know I still had so much stuff to work on and we should have took our time when we got together. Didn't do that. You know, I was in lust and thought I was in love and didn't listen to my mom or anybody else. And he was like, well, I got this. I'm good. Don't worry about me. You know, the marriage goes on and like, you know, you just get hints of like, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? But you want to do right by this woman because like you've seen people go through stuff and you just want to help. And you forget about yourself and you just want to help and you just want to see these people in like good places. One thing that I learned in therapy, okay, it's okay to help people, but you got to realize that like, you're not responsible for putting these people in the situations that, you know, they put themselves in. She told me, it's like, she's like, that has nothing to do with you. I know you want to help people get out. And um, me growing up, single parent home, starting out, that's just like, you know, I have my mom's heart. And as long as I have my mom's heart, I'm going to want to help people. And that's just where I was, you know, single mom, three kids. I'm like, man, what can I do? I moved them out to Colorado, man, set them up, had the boys' backpacks and everything, ready to go to school, you know, got beds and everything, man, just like, you know, they were doing good, I was doing good, but inside I wasn't. There was still like something internally going on that like, I was like, man, something's wrong. And, you know, that whole time, like, I'm having pains, I'm having shooting pains at my rectum and stuff like that, and, you know, I go get checked and... They tell me it's nothing. They send me home. And that was what that was in 2013, 13, 14, when I go get checked and they said it's nothing. 
So over time, man, you, you, you're feeling this stuff and I'm still, you know, doing my deployment, still working, like it's nothing, just taking care of everybody else but me. So as the marriage goes on, you know, you know, you start to have these stupid arguments and like everything starts to bother you. And you're asking yourself like, was this a good idea? Like, who did I marry? And I'm pretty sure she's probably asking the same thing. But as you progress in the marriage and, you know, you just start to like drift apart, which sucks because you think that's your person. And you just realize like the end is near, kind of, sort of. So in, I think in 2000, I deployed in 2016. I get to the end of my deployment and, you know, that's one one moment where I'm having like the pains that are shooting through my body are so bad. And for a while, I couldn't go to the bathroom. I didn't go to the bathroom for two to three days. I had to um, go get checked and go get like checked rectally. And I'll tell this lady, I was like, I don't know what's wrong. Something that's going on. And I'm having shooting pains up through like my whole body. It doubles me over like maybe three or four times a day. And, you know, I get one exam and this lady is like, she's like, something's in there. She don't like, she's like, I don't know what it is, but something's in there and I need to go get a second opinion. So there's two people pretty much digging in my butt, Cody. How old are you at the time? I was 34. So the other guy comes in and he does a check, you know, like somebody's paying for dinner at this point. Like this is, this is too much. But, you know, on the more serious note, they tell me I got to go downtown and get checked. And they come back and like something's in there. Um, but I tell them I want to finish my deployment. That's just how dedicated I was to the Air Force. And I should have been anything but that at the time. But they send me home. I finish my deployment. I get home on my mom's birthday on December 12th. And I go in and, you know, I get checked again. And I was like, I don't want any results right now. I'm pretty sure something bad going on, but um, I'm going to take this time and I'm going to go on this vacation. I'm going to take my wife to Thailand and we're going to have a good time and come back and then we'll handle it. So we go to Thailand, have a great time over there, see elephants, swim with the elephants. No, I didn't get in that water. We didn't get in that water. They got in that nasty water. But yeah, man, just had a good time. Um, New Year's and Christmas. I mean, Christmas and New Year's went to Thailand, came back and that's when everything started. So March 3rd, I go in for my colonoscopy and then uh, I get out and probably like 10 minutes after I get out, they come back and tell me you have stage three, stage three colon cancer. And it's almost spreading to your lymph nodes. And I'm still high as a kite coming out of anesthesia and Dez is over there like bawling. I'm like, what, what, what's going on? Why are you crying? And She's like, you didn't hear what the doc said. She's like, you have cancer. And I'm like, okay. So we go home. Let it sink in. Uh, We go back to the office about two or three days later so we can get our plan together. And that's when it really set in. She's like, okay, stage three, colon cancer. It hasn't hit your left nodes. And, you know, you don't realize the the seriousness of, of it when you're in it. She walks out the office and... You know, I take about five minutes and I cry. I let a, a good, healthy cry out. And after that, I'm like, all right, tell me what we can do to fix it. 
and how are we going to kill this shit? Like, you know, giving up is not an option. That's not in the playbook. We come up with our plan. Um, so there's going to be like 58 total treatments of chemo and about 28 treatments of um, radiology or radiation. Sorry. So we start that on March 18th. It's so crazy how like I remember these exact dates. We're doing that. So they give me my chemo pills. I got to take five big horse chemo pills in the morning. And then I got to do radiation uh, right after that. And I got to take five more at night. I do that for 28 cycles. And I'm driving 40, 40 minutes every morning, uh, every weekday morning down to get my radiation. So I think about two or three weeks into it, you feel it. You feel it, that radiation finally. And man, when I tell you, when you go to the bathroom and it feels like lava coming out and you got to put like numbing cream on your butt and stuff like that, and it's not getting any better, you're going through it. And like, you know, your marriage is suffering at the same time. So, you know, we, we talked about splitting up a couple of times going into that. And you kind of want to think it like kind of made you stronger. But we, we pulled it together. Um, and we made it through like the treatments and stuff like that. But where, where were you? I mean, from the time that you got your initial diagnosis through treatment and everything mentally, where were you at and where you drawn all the strength from? Man, I've always had a positive attitude on most of the stuff. Like, I don't know where I pulled it from, but man, like when I was going through my radiation, I'm still out playing basketball tournaments. Um, I get my radiation and I come back, man, and my butt will be burning and I'm running up and down the court. Nobody had any idea. So I don't know, man, like I just, giving up wasn't an option. You get that from your mom? Just never a I think so. Figure I think so. it I out. Like my family, period. Like we have a, a pretty resilient family. And, you know, I'm talking to her and, you know, she came out to see me. My sisters came out. I'm like, man, if they're not giving up, my sister was a wreck. Like I'm closest to like my immediately older sister and she was a wreck, but nobody would let me see it. So that kind of made me stronger and it kind of made me think that like, I definitely got something to fight for, but you don't, you don't, you don't think about, I, I never thought about death. I was closer to it than I thought I was. I had really had no idea how close to death like stage three cancer could be because you hear like these celebrities passing away and um, the Black Panther guy passed away from colon cancer and he was battling his and I'm like, man, I beat this in 10 months. And, you know, he, he died of it. So back to my treatment. So I, I have surgery on August 18th and I get a piece of my colon taken out and I'm up walking that night, man. Uh, after a five, six hour surgery, I'm walking. And the doc was like, all right, man, you give me eight laps tonight. Give me about 16 tomorrow. You can head out. And I'm like, man, I get that dude 10 laps that night. And I gave him like, I think he said 18, 18 to 20 that next night. And he let me go the third day. Dez is changing out like my bulbs. Uh, she's draining them and stuff like that. And yeah, man, it's just a, it's a team effort, man. And she was a big part of like my healing process. And she helped me a lot, even though 
I couldn't imagine what she was going through because she lost her dad to cancer. And now like your husband has cancer. So, and that's what like, I didn't really take into effect of like what she might've been going through. I was just kind of worried about myself and trying to like make it through these treatments and stuff like that. But you know, after I had the surgery, dude, like a, a week after my birthday, my birthday's on September 5th, I had to start like radio, I mean, intravenous chemo had to get a chest port put in so that process man I got my chest port put in so I go in for two hours in the morning and get steroids and get antibiotics so I sit there for two hours and get that and then you know they give me a pump to take home and I'd have a two and a half inch needle in my chest for two days from Monday morning until Wednesday afternoon I, I do that and I stay out, man. I'd be up, I'd be walking my dog. I'd be out. I just couldn't sit in the house, man. I just, I couldn't do it because they told me once you give into it, that's when it takes over you. So I was like, no way in hell. I'm just going to sit around and feel sorry for myself. I can't do it. So I'm just out and about, man, running with the dog with this big ass thing on my side. And I did 28 cycles of that, but after that first time, dude, I threw up from about 6.30 that night till 7.30 that next morning. Literally like 40, 45 minutes, like clockwork. You know, you throw up and you get to the bottom of your stomach and there's nothing left. And you're like, I just got nothing. I got nothing. Like, I don't know what else I can throw up. And, you know, you know, she's in there with me rubbing my back and stuff like that. And I'm just like, I can't stop throwing up. I was like, and like, I'm exhausted by five o'clock, but it's still coming. And once you get up and once you get past that first day, man, um, Thursday, Thursday, Thursday evening, I'm ready to eat. I'm ready to get some in my stomach and just like start this next two weeks of, of healing until I no, it was one week on one week off until I do it again. So I think I did six cycles of that. So what I didn't tell anybody is like, I had to make the most important decision of my life, which literally meant life, life or death. They wanted to do 12 months of chemo uh, that second round. And I told this lady, I was like, I've done so much research because I, I, my bosses had given me literally all of 2018 off. And all I did was do cancer research. And I told this lady, she wanted me to do 12 months of chemo. I was like, lady, there is no way in hell. I'm sitting here doing six more months of this. I like, I am going to make a command decision on my health to stop at six months. She called the commander. She called the med group and she's like, he is refusing treatment. And my commander had my back. My commander's like, if he wants to stop, that's on him. We're going to back him. If he's done the research. And I was telling this doctor stats that she didn't even know, which was mind blowing to me. I was like, the only difference between six and 12 months of chemo is a 0.08 percentage of survival rate. I was like, that is not worth putting my body through six more months of this. I was like, I'm not doing it. So I shut it down on my 28th uh, treatment. I was like, I just, I'm just not doing it anymore. And she was like, that's your decision. 
And it turned out to be a good decision because I've been in remission since January of 2019. Hadn't had any problem, hadn't had any flare-ups, hadn't had any anything. And we decided to got to oh, September of last year when we decided to split up. It was some external stuff going on that it's not important anymore, but like I, I will never talk bad about this lady. She was there in my darkest times. So it, it meant a lot. And like, I'll always hold it near and dear, but sometimes, you know, you grow apart and you need to split up for a while. We don't know. Um, you know, it could, we never know what's going to happen in the future. It could, we could be back together, whatever. But right now it was just, it was just time man, for like to take a break. And, you know, I needed it more than probably her just to find myself and stuff like that. But man, since November, man, I've been a nomad. I've been living with people. And just thank God that I have a, like a good network of friends that have taken care of me since, you know, the split. And, you know, it took me in like that wintertime, man, like when they left. And that was that was worse. That felt worse than the cancer. Because one day they're here, next day they're gone. And, you know, I, I was going to therapy again and she was like, it's, it's like a death. When you lose somebody, when you lose three people that you've been with for like seven, eight years and they're just gone. So do I have to go back home and my dog is sitting, my dog is sitting by the boy's door and he's like, what the hell is going on? Where's my people? And so he's just sad. I'm like, oh, I can't even talk to my, my, my son to explain what's going on. He's just sitting by the door and I never let him sleep in the bed. I let that, I let him sleep in the bed the rest of the time he was there. So it gets better. I had to rehome him because I had nowhere to take him. So that's rock bottom. I take him to the rescue shelter and he acts a fool. He knows what's coming. And he was like, nah, dad, I'm not going. And, you know, he, he does, he's not good with dogs. But he knew that I was leaving and trying to leave him there. And he just acted crazy. So I got him back in the truck. He's a normal self again. I'm like, you know what the hell you did, man. Like, so I get on the German Shepherd group, man. Like I'm desperate to get him like a good home because I can't keep him because he was just, he's a hundred pound German Shepherd. And I don't know, he's so um, unpredictable with kids. So I didn't want him at my friend's house because his, his younger uh, nieces, I mean, nephews are coming over. So I was like, I can't even risk that guy. He mess around and kill little kids or something. I put an ad out in the um, German Shepherd group and this angel, she answers me and she's like, I can take him if you want to drive him over to Seattle. And I was like, oh. oh, I was like, man, this is all I have left. Like, you know, it's me and Flex and we're just in the house and like, I have nothing else left but my dog. And I'm like, man, when I lose my dog, man, like, you know, I cried in the, um, in the rescue shelter because I thought that I was gonna have to give him up. And yeah, she took him. I take him in the house and she was like, take his, take his muscle off. I was like, girl, girl, you're crazy. You got two babies in here. Cody, I took this dog's muzzle off. Man, he walks so calmly into the house and she has two other dogs in there. And he's just like, like he's been there like forever. So I was like, I feel better about taking him. And it's me and my boy, like, you know, I cry when I get back in the truck because I've had this dog for seven years. And like he's part of the family. 
So it was like losing another family member. I was like, all right, man, it's just me now. Rock bottom. I've lost everything. So, dude, I'm still cleaning out the house. I had to go back home. I had to clean out the house. Being, being who I am, I took her stuff to my storage on my own while she leaves. I still got a heart and I can't be the, like the mean guy that I want to be. So I'm just going to, I'll keep it, whatever. So I keep it there and I clean out the house and I moved out the house at the end of November. And it's like a weight lifted off when you move out of the house, man. And you go home, it's like you see silhouettes and stuff walking through your house. And I was like, man, I got to get the hell out of here. Like, this is, this is way too much. So I, I clear I cleared the house and my good friends helped me. And I'm in a way better place after that. But like, it's, it's you know, still rough. They left right before Thanksgiving. I got Christmas coming up and I got New Year's coming up. I'm like, damn, and I'm by myself. So you think about going back and, you know, I fly down and I try to fix it. But it was a blessing in disguise that like it didn't work out and it, it didn't didn't need to work out at that time because neither one of us was still ready and we were still angry and stuff like that. So, you know, I fly down for my aunt's funeral and I think it was February or December, December. And we meet up and have dinner, whatever, and talking just doesn't work out. So, all right. I was like, all right. I, Slow down, try to fix it. It's not working. So I'm flying back and I'm going to move on. So I'm staying with my friends and I'm working and stuff like that. And, you know, I just got to make it to June. I was like, I was June and I'm good. June was a month that my skill bridge started and I can get back. I was like, man, if I make it to June, I'm good. I had, I moved in with my old supervisor. They took me in. They was like, yeah, we get, we got you in the marriage, man. We're good. Like, and I'm like, I feel like a stepkid, man. Like you just stand with people and you're just living on people. And I'm like, man, I just want my own spot again. So that's kind of where I am now. I'm, I'm here in Casa Grande, living with like one of my really good friends, like my sister. And like, it's just a blessing that she was here because I'm living in some lady's house in the Airbnb and she ends up being nuts. And dude, she, she's coming in drunk and falling over the place and she tells me like my daughter beats me I was like okay this is not what I came here for I was like I gotta get the hell out of here I got enough stuff going on and right now I just want peace so I leave and I tell this lady um I'm leaving early and she's like I, I get it and she refunds my money so I get down to Castle Grand and like, it's so peaceful down here, man. You wake up, you walk out in the back and you just got to look at the mountains. And, you know, I got two dogs here and I got my good friend here. We just sit around and play Call of Duty after I do my, my classes and stuff like that. But yeah, man, it's just, it's, everything happens for a reason. And like to be where I am now mentally, as opposed to where I was in about December, January timeframe, it's been a 180. And like, I'm so glad that I've had like, this is why like I network and why I don't burn my bridges is because like these people that have always been there for you, like when you're down and you're lowest, you will see who's there for you. And these people, uh, they've been there. Like I've talked to Yard and, you know, Miranda and just a couple of people that have called in and checked on me. And a couple of people that have disappeared. 
um, in, the, in the same breath. And, you know, I'm thankful for who was there. But, dude, I just had to, I had to pick myself up, man, because honestly, I don't know where I'd be if my friends hadn't helped me through that, that hard winter. Because if, I don't know, I've never felt pain like that, you know, you know, having cancer and like then divorce and then, you know, you got to pick your, pick up all the pieces and you got, you got to go back to the house and you got to move everything out pretty much by yourself. So, and after that, man, I was like, man, if that didn't break me, then it's game time. This is just chapter 38, man. Just had a birthday. And I'm like, all right, I'm back to old me now. And it's time to move forward, man. Like it's, it's definitely been a ride and dealt with like depression and, you know, thoughts of like, like, should I end it? And I'm like, hell no, hell no. I got too many people to live for. And, I, and you don't, you hate to compare your story to other people, but I'm like, man, no matter what I went through, so many people have had it worse. And I just got to get my ass up and get back in gear and just keep fighting. And I don't know where I pulled it from, but I pulled it from somewhere and I'm here now, man. And I'm, I'm doing amazing. And I'm down here doing my internship here at uh, Intel, and I'm probably headed back to Texas here pretty soon. And man, life is about to be good, man. I'm about to be back around family. And like, I'm just excited for the future, man. So everything, everything's good, man. So good to hear. The ride is so crazy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm thinking of like, you know, obviously I know you, your family, man, but like for everybody else that's listening to this, there's so many different layers of things that they can learn from. And like, I'll probably say like, first and foremost, like whatever you decide to do with your life, if that's in service or, or college or whatever, like have a plan and ultimately like, you know, shoot for the stars. If you dream something, figure out a plan and go achieve it. The second part of it is like, you know, if something comes up with your physical health, no matter what else you think is important at the time, figure it out what it is. Yeah. Know? And I know it's like easy to look back on now and be like, you know, you're going to put everything else above your own needs. Cause that's just, you know, the men that we are and yeah. we got to, we're, we're constant providers. We're, we're, you know, when we see somebody else that's hurt, we try to pick them up, give them a hand up, try to save them. If that's what we think, you know, is necessary. Young people aren't supposed to get colon cancer. The screening is not till 50. So what the, well, what the hell needs to change? Dude, they need to take us more seriously, man. Um, you know, and I hate to, I hate to calm down on military doctors, but they don't take us seriously, man. Like, when people say, like, what military doctors do to uh, prescribe us Motrin, that's so true. That's so true. Like, we're just, we're just numbers, man. And somebody needs to take it more seriously. And they've, I think, I'm pretty sure they've made it to where, like, you're, you're able to sue for malpractice now from some of these doctors, which I knew something was wrong. But, you know, you go in, they just, they're just telling you. It's not really what you think it is. It's what we think it is. But they don't, they didn't screen you. They didn't take samples. 
they, they, they didn't give you x-rays or anything like that. So, yeah, man. Um, and then what I left out is when they figured out that they couldn't use me anymore, they tried to medically retire me. So I'm at 17 and a half years and, you know, I've been through 11 deployments, but all of a sudden I'm of no use to you since I can't deploy anymore. So we got to get this guy out of here. He's no good. So imagine like how low you feel when you've done so much for your country and you, you go when they tell you to go, no complaints. And then they tell you now that you can't go, we can't use you anymore. You got to get the hell out. That, that messes with your head. And that puts your thoughts like all over the place. But thank God I had like such a good team fighting for me. And my leadership, it, it, it pissed my leadership off for them to be doing that to me. And as you can attest, being a military guy, you don't always have those people that have your back like that. Like they pretty much follow the advice of the so-called medical professionals. So I had to go down to San Antonio to a physical board. I'd taken the PT test and I did everything they told me that I couldn't do. I took the PT test and I meet these people face to face and they tell you no. So there, there was a Lieutenant Colonel, great guy. He had stage four colon cancer. They cleared him, no problems. But they're sitting here telling me, a guy who has no symptoms, no, I'm on no medicine. I took the PT test. I did whatever they told me that, that, they, that I couldn't do. I did it, killed it. Told me I was no good to the military anymore. But because this guy has a different job, more valuable job, they're gonna push him through, no problems. So he wrote a letter for me. And it, it meant nothing, man. Like these people, they're lying on these forms and stuff like that. And, you know, I, had to, I literally had to fight and go up to the secretary of the Air Force level to save my career. I got down to my last appeal. I did three appeals and got down to the very last one before they told me, OK, you can't do more than 20. We'll let you get to 20 and then you got to go. So that's pretty much where I am now. I am I will be at 20 years and zero days because I started writing with Congress people and stuff like that. So that's the next step. You gotta get the, the politicians involved because these people care about us more than we think they do. Air Force level leadership, I can't say the same. Like we're just numbers to them and they know it's gonna be next man up, but you know, they don't think about like, if you have a family, if people are dependent on you, like. They don't think about like all these deployments that you've done for them and like how you put everything on the line and you never complain about going on a deployment. Like all they think is like, we can't use you. So yeah, you're done. Get out. We can't use you. Bye. And I was like, hell no, I'm not going anywhere. Like you're going, you're going to give me this pension. I earned this pension. Like whatever you guys have asked me to, have asked me to do, I've done with zero complaints. So now you're telling me that just, you feel like a piece of trash. You feel like dirt or a piece of gum on the bottom of somebody's foot when they tell you that. So that's another part of things that I was dealing with. Even when I was going through like, like my treatment, I'm fighting against the medical board. And that's just added more stress. Uh, yeah.
And that's that's a part of it that like a lot of people don't see, like the the mental the mental game that you go through. I don't know, man, Cody. I don't know how I made it through it, man. But I just chose to like not give in and like let those dark thoughts take me to where I knew they could take me. Well, you know, we're always here. Oh, of course, of course. She's been my therapist <laughs> for over sure. the years. For sure, man. Phenomenal story. This is just a chapter of a, a long life. So what do we yeah. got going on next? What are we building uh, towards? I am going back to school, man. Um, so they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to get us transitioned over from, um, I work for a company called JLL, Jones Lane LaSalle, their commercial real estate company. But they are switching um, contracts from Intel to a company called Lamentum. You know, lately I'm just like, man, I've done so much over these last 20 years. And like, I keep pushing and I'm thinking like, I just need a break. And I kind of just want to go home and catch up with my family and just literally travel around. Cause I haven't even seen the girls yet. Isn't it weird how like, how full circle life sometimes can be the thing that you're itching itching 20 years ago about getting away oh, from now is what's back yeah and like you know i just miss my friendships man like you know being up north and just you know being alone uh after after dads and the boys left man i just realized it just made you realize like there are more important things than like money um and stuff like that and i just um think that i just need to take a break and collect myself again. Uh, I'm, I'm in a good place, but I just think that I need to slow down because I'm, I'm always trying to do like way too much. And just to go around and like see everybody and you know, I got 100% disability and plus a lot more than that. So I can afford to take a break. And yeah. I just wanna go around and then see everybody and just visit friends for a little bit, man. And just like, and re- refill my tank. Y'all got three babies I haven't even seen yet, man. And I'm like, I'm just missing on everything. And I just, I just gotta see my people, man. Like that, that just, that's what fills me up. Just seeing my friends and just seeing my friends do good and people with families and stuff like that. Maybe it's not for me right now. You know, maybe I'll meet somebody here um, sooner or later. I like, I'm not rushing it. I'm still working on myself. But until then, man, I'm going to be that fun uncle. There you go. Just go around and see everybody, man. Um, and I'm going to finish my bachelor's degree, man. That's, that's one thing that I promised to my mom that, uh, that I always do. So I'm going to do that for her and for me and go home and build up my man cave in my house and go to these football games in Austin that I've been missing so much. So that's just, that's next for me, man. Um, yeah, just, just, Relax, finally. <laughs>